Hello and welcome into NCBI's Technology Podcast. My name is Stuart Lawler. This is episode number 46 for March 2016. Well, thank you, as always, for downloading and subscribing to our monthly technology podcast. Stay with us for the next hour this month, because we're going to be telling you about a new computer training course that we're running in NCBI over two Saturdays in April. If you want to get your name down for that, then get in touch with me. William Campbell is an Irish podcaster who'll be along to tell us about his podcast, Here's How. Paul Trainer, our chief tech support officer, is back to answer all your questions on Windows 10. And finally, I'll be meeting Jemin Joseph, who participated in this year's BT Young Scientist Exhibition. That's all coming up on this month's edition of NCBI's Technology Podcast. Well, I hope you've all had a good month. I hope you're preparing for Easter. It's a really strange time of year, isn't it? Because we have St. Patrick's Day in the middle of March, and then it's pretty much going right into Easter, and schools are off, and people are on all sorts of different uh, uh, working uh, routines, I think, over those last two weeks in March. So whatever you're going to be doing in March, I hope you have an enjoyable break or whatever a bit of a break you may get to take. Now, uh, if you're interested in training, and I know lots of people who listen to this podcast are interested in training, then listen up, because we at NCBI are delighted to announce details of a technology training program, which is going to be running under the benefit scheme. It's going to be held in April of this year. Benefit is an initiative which supports community, voluntary and not-for-profit organisations to provide digital literacy training with an emphasis on getting people online. The course will run over two Saturdays on the 16th and the 23rd of April, and we'll be holding it here at our Rehabilitation Training Centre on Whitworth Road. The training will focus on using email, using Skype, searching the internet, accessing and interacting with social media, using online government services and exploring cloud technology. The course is open to anyone as long as you haven't previously undertaken a benefit training program. And if you'd like to attend, you must be free on both Saturdays. That's the 16th and 23rd of April. It's really important that you're available to attend the two Saturday sessions. Now, there is a maximum of six places, and I can tell you already that places are filling fast. So if you want to get your name on the list, well, please give me a shout in NCBI. You can get in touch by sending an email to technologypodcast at ncbi.ie if you want, or you can call me on 087-992-6360. As I say, places are going very fast, so please make sure to get your name on the list if you do want to attend. Now, we have had loads of feedback, by the way, um, and, 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 and probably more so even last month, to our January edition. Some people were just catching up with January, um, and specifically to Bobby Hickey's interview. You'll remember Bobby Hickey is an inspirational young lady um, who, who joined us in January and was just talking talking about her plans for the future and what she's going to do. So uh, if you missed Bobby, find her on the January edition. We also had lots of feedback to Ali and Deirdre from Clare Galway College. They joined us on the February edition of our podcast talking about their cane uh, from the Young Scientist exhibition. And as you've heard, we're going to have more from the Young Scientist a little bit later on with Gemin Joseph. Now, one of the requests we've had, and we always welcome your requests, by the way, is um, one or two people were asking if we could talk a little bit about Twitter. Twitter. 
and how Twitter is used. And I suppose Twitter is something that lends itself very well to people who are blind or have low vision. It's a very easy way to interact with um, lots and lots of people. I was using it a lot over the last couple of days to follow all the excitement of our general election here. So we're going to be exploring Twitter, I suppose, over the next couple of editions of our podcast. So do stay tuned if you're interested in Twitter. And thank you to those people who got in touch to feedback. We welcome all sorts of feedback, suggestions for items on our podcast, or indeed, if you'd like to get involved yourself, whatever it is you want to say, do send an email to technologypodcast at ncbi.ie. Now, on this podcast, pretty much exclusively, we're dealing with issues relating to vision impairment and mostly technology. We've done a few lifestyle things, but this month I'm going all out and breaking all the rules and doing a lifestyle issue that really has nothing to do with vision impairment, but that is in some way linked to technology. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email from a gentleman named William Campbell, who's living in Ireland. He's not visually impaired. He's nothing to do with vision impairment, but he is linked to this podcast because he is another Irish. Irish podcaster. And we thought it would be very nice to talk to William about his podcast and maybe do a little cross promotion over time. Who knows? William joins us on Skype. William, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. Uh, Good to have you. And your podcast is called Here's How. Yeah, that's right. So it's a political podcast? And that's fair enough to say. Uh, politics, um, current affairs, social affairs would be the the um, uh, the remit, I would say, which is self-imposed. Um, and in the last few, I've been focusing very much on politics, tried to get um, a candidate uh, from each of the parties in the election coming up as we're recording. That's only a couple of days away. And uh, I discovered that it wasn't too hard to get to interview each of um, people from the smaller parties, from Renewa, Social Democrats, Green Party, people before profit. Uh, then I started trying to get the um, the larger parties uh, and it was significantly more difficult. And just today, well, yesterday I sent out an email uh, uh, to every candidate whose email I could get a hold of and said, look, your party is likely to be left out if you don't uh, step up to the mark. And just today I've recorded interviews with uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin. They'll all be up. I think I'll do one giant podcast with all of them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, we're at time of recording and by the time this podcast is published, we'll just have had a general election here in Ireland and for the benefit of people outside of Ireland who listen to this podcast, we've been absolutely blitzed by nothing but politics and lobbying and campaigning for the last few few weeks. Just just, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Were, were, did, were you always interested in this this in this in this gig? I suppose I have a, a hurler on the ditch interest in politics. I think it's it's um, interesting. Maybe it's a blood sport. Um, so I would be somebody who's fairly well up with current affairs and so forth. And uh, I did write a book about uh, five or six years ago, um, which I have and I've borrowed the domain here's how ie from the book uh, to do the podcast as well. That was mostly uh, it tried to be a very positive spin on politics rather than uh, everybody sitting around blaming everybody. I thought it would be an idea to try and put forward positive ideas. And, and uh, I had been writing notes really for a few years about, you know, 
those sort of pub conversations of, you know what they should do now. Uh, I just tried to keep a note of all of those sorts of things. And then I put it into a book and it was published um, by Brandon Books in 2010. That went relatively well. I didn't really expect to be um, uh, to be competing with uh, um, uh, any of the major publishers. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be the next Dan Brown, okay. uh, but um, uh, that uh, um, probably well, had a, had a, 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 an influence in in narrow circles, okay. and uh, it kind of takes it from there. So, so putting together because I, I, I listen, I do this every month, and I think you produce even more than once a month. Uh, the, the editing, the splicing, all that stuff, and people often say to me, "What's it like? How long does it take you to put together the podcast?" And I often say to people, "It's not the interviews or, or getting the content, even as the problem. It, the 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 time is involved in the in the post production. Is that the same for you?" It is. I have become better. I have to say. Um, the uh, I know you use some very professional stuff. There's actually also free software out there. Audacity is the one that I use, uh, which is really excellent. You kind of see every track on a on a on a timeline, and you can cut and paste and put it through various effects if you want to do that. Um, so yes, that is fairly time consuming but I think the more you practice the better you get at it and you learn how to um, uh, uh, avoid doing uh, too much repetitive work there's little macros that you can kind of set to do a few different things together so just let's let's talk a little bit about uh, well about your podcast but maybe podcasts in general because I noticed at the beginning we were talking about the election and you got the, the smaller parties as you said and then today you were saying you managed to get interviews with the bigger parties do you think there's still a sense in Ireland from the big parties and the guys who are saying, well, that's only a podcast. I mean, how many people are going to listen? I'm not going to waste my time on this. Clearly, you've broken through that. Is that changing? I think it is. Um, we tend to be a few years behind the States. Um, it is turning into a huge industry in the US. Indeed, mine is done totally as a as a spare time thing. It's not, um, it's not paid in any way. But it is happening more and more uh, that um, podcasts are becoming large commercial ventures. There's two that I think of, and um, I guess your listeners are podcast listeners. Uh, one of them is uh, Serial, which is the biggest podcast ever. And if oh, you haven't, yeah. I, won't, I, I won't spoil I, it for you. It's funny, it's, uh, you're, you're the third or fourth person the last two weeks, and I'm going away on holidays in April. And that's one of the things I'm going to bring with me because I've been told I have to hear Serial. So, uh, yeah, yeah I, would, I would say. And there's an, um, one other, a... Um, producer with NPR. NPR would be kind of the equivalent of maybe the BBC. It's a less commercial uh, radio network in the US. Um, And one producer uh, set up his own company producing with very, very high production standards, a whole slate of podcasts. I think they have more than a dozen. Uh, And that's an entirely commercial venture. They sell advertising uh, within the podcasts, most of the advertising doesn't really relate to people who live outside the US, but that doesn't stop you from actually listening to it. Um, I'm not expecting to retire on this anytime soon, but I think that that kind of push is uh, going to be something that will will um, worldwide make it a more accepted. Um, medium, something that's better known and people can, you know, when you're at home, 
you click on your phone and it downloads uh, whatever podcast you're interested in over the Wi-Fi. Then when you're out, you can listen to whatever you want. Uh, it's it's an inherently practical medium, I think. Services like uh, Audio Boom have have probably made that a lot easier as well. I mean, you see people just pulling out their phones and recording it. You know, I'm standing outside the U2 concert and yeah. it's sampling the atmosphere. And it's great, isn't it, to, to hear those kind of things? It, it is. And also, like the equipment that you need for it... I, you basically need a laptop. I splashed out and I bought myself uh, a Christmas present of a 50 euro microphone, which I'm speaking into now. It sounds um, good. Yeah. Um, it, but that's really the limit of the expenditure involved. Um, everything is recorded, mixed, edited on a laptop, which I have anyway. Uh, and uh, you can don't want to blow my own trumpet, but you're coming across be pretty clear to me and, and your, you know, your production values are pretty high. You can sound with a bit of practice, not much less professional than any radio station. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the things I think if for anyone, you know, if, you, if you're putting out a podcast, there's your name. In our case, there's the name of NCBI. We, we are producing something as an organization. It needs to be something that people will listen to and people will actually say, God, I want to hear more. So that's how I view that. Um, one of the things, William, you mentioned in your initial email to me was you have been working to set up, I suppose, a group within Ireland of Facebook. Facebook group for podcasters. And it, it got me thinking, because there's this, well, there's you and me. Are there many other Irish podcasters? Or can you tell us a bit about that? Um, I can tell you a huge amount. There's not an enormous number. It's in the region of a dozen or two dozens, that, that sort of uh, region. I know uh, one that I listen to myself is Irishman Abro- Abroad. Uh, this is Jonathan O'Regan. Um, he tends to do personal interviews kind of a long form interview uh that are it's not uh they're they're more um human interest type interviews um uh aside i know there's also uh, is it a bicycle it's a film review oh uh, yeah yeah one. yeah i heard something about that one actually yeah yeah um but i i the the purpose of the facebook group was really just to have contact between all of them and of course it makes uh sense to do cross promotion because if you and I were running radio stations we would be at daggers drawn because we would because everyone who's listening to you is somebody who's not listening to me but if it's a podcast there's no reason why they can't listen to both you and me and the people who listen to you know who started listening to podcasts because they were interested in your podcast are that much more likely to listen to more podcasts as well so it's a much more cooperative scene i think one of the things we found very interesting after our, our first you know couple of months on the on the air i suppose we 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 were syndicated we were picked up by a service in the states that has a i suppose directory of podcasts and radio services for people who are visually impaired and mm-hmm. they they they've they, they've hundreds of them and I remember the day they emailed me and said, we're going to carry you. And I sent the email to our CEO and said, wow, we've just broken to a new group. And it, it, I think those are interesting things. So when people start hearing, it goes back to what you're saying about quality and about you're putting something out that you want people to listen to. If people start hearing that and say, I read this is good stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think that kind of... Uh with any medium, and we're at the start of this. I remember reading a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, a book by a guy called Nicholas Negroponte, who's a professor in MIT, and he was one of the early pioneers of the internet. And his 
uh, the book was called Being Digital, and it was really predicting what would happen with the internet. And a couple of the things are, I have to say, hilariously wrong, but some of them were really spot on the money. And this book, I think I read in maybe 1995, so it was, you know, very right at the dawn of the internet. One of the things he said was that with the exception of sports, live sports, and perhaps election results, there's no reason in the world why anybody should be listening to uh, a radio program or watching a TV program in exact unison with millions of other people. Right. You can listen to it or watch it when suits you. And I think that's that's um, something with podcasting, with Netflix, uh, and with, um, you know, just the, the DVR boxes that you can record and watch later, your TV programs. That's, a, that's a, something that's really coming true only in the last couple of years, yeah. but it was predicted a long time ago. And I suppose nowadays, don't we, we expect things to be on catch-up. Like if you miss a program, you say, it doesn't matter, I'll get in the player, or, you know, I'll get it whenever. You're not worrying about recording something anymore. It's, it's just everything has changed. It, yeah, to, to a degree, that's we're we no longer have to organise our lives around the limitations of the technology. The technology works for us rather than the other way around. All right. Your podcast is, by the way, I've listened to a number of episodes. It's really good, by the way. Um, it's, I, Thank you. I, I like your style. I like how you engage with people. So I highly recommend it, by the way, and I hope people listening here will check it out. Give, how, um, how can people find you? Where can they go to, to, to subscribe, etc.? Very, very, very simple. Website is hereshow.ie, H-E-R-E-S, as in here's how, H-O-W dot I-E. Um, if you have iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn Radio, any of those, you can uh, just add in the URL uh, with iTunes. It's just kind of a one-click thing from the website. And, and with the others, you kind of copy and paste uh, the feed, but it works like every other podcast. So if, if somebody's listening to your podcast, they can also which I think um, a chunk of people do, just go into the website every so often and click play mm. on the on the page of the individual podcast. Um, that's probably the low-tech way of doing it. Okay. But uh, if you have, uh, you know, I mean, I think iTunes accounts for a large portion of it. So if you have uh, an iPhone or an iPad, you just go into iTunes and click subscribe and it pops up whenever there's a new one. Okay, and we're going to put the link and uh, indeed a direct link to the RSS feed on our show notes here as well so people can subscribe. How, how often do you publish, by the way? Um, this week is very often. Yeah, of course. Yeah, week. yeah. Given the week, um, yeah. I am. Um, I well. I can let me give you the statistics. Almost exactly a year and number thirty-one or thirty-two. Thirty-two is just in production. Right. So that's maybe once every ten days, about. Okay. On average, I, I suppose the the whole nature of the, of the area in which you're covering the political um, arena, things can change very very soon. And as you said, there you're going to have a, a bumper edition coming out for the election. So it, it's certainly one I'm going to be tuning into. By the way, uh, that, that's later, right. That'll be hopefully done in a couple of hours. Right. I have to do just some final audio clear ups. But one of the things I like about the podcast format is you get the impression um, with a lot of news programs that they're behaving a little bit like a fire brigade that they see what's today and they kind of rush off and, and uh, try to slap something together that's relevant. And I think my real aim in the podcast was to slow that down. Anybody who's being interviewed will get at least 13 or 14 minutes and more if it justifies it to state their case and to answer questions. And my my I'm 
going back a few years, but I remember um, Peter Mandelson, who was the kind of the um, media supremo for the Labour Party for Tony Blair in the UK. And uh, he banned all of his candidates from going on interviews that were more than three minutes long. And the, the, um, the thinking behind that was that anybody could waffle for three minutes and you could avoid a question for three minutes. If it goes longer than that... Who knows where it'll go? Yeah, and it you'll get caught. The interview yeah. will be able yeah. to nail you yeah. on a particular point that you might not want to answer okay. and I really want to be the opposite of that no no three minute interviews I don't allow them to go on too long I will hurry people along a little bit if I think it's appropriate mm-hmm. um, once in a while I've had people have the tactic that they've obviously learned from Peter Mandelson or one of his acolytes of just repeating the same point over and not addressing what you're asking. It's handy to be able to, if somebody said something three times, it's, I think it's handy for the listener to be able to just get your scissors out and cut out mm, the last two times course. that they repeated yeah. the point and, and uh, it tidies up. But most people, in fairness, are, are relatively, uh, you know, they'll, they'll address the questions that you ask if they feel they're going to get space to answer them. All right, lovely stuff. William, it's, it's great. It's lovely to meet an Irish podcaster. So congratulations again and thank same you for, here, for taking here. the time to come on. Hope we're going to stay in touch. But for the moment, William Campbell, Absolutely, thanks Stuart. a million. Thank you very much, Stuart. Bye-bye. Now, if you buy a new computer or if you have recently done so, whether it be a laptop, desktop or tablet, uh, the chances are you are going to have, whether you want it or not, Windows 10, Microsoft's latest operating system. There's still lots of queries and discussions about Windows 10, whether you like, love or hate it. And uh, our Windows 10 guru in NCBI is none other, none other than Paul Trainer, our chief tech support officer. And he's back on the line again to talk more Windows 10. Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Good, good to have to you. you again. Yeah, good to be with you. I understand you've been, uh, we were just talking off air, you've been at the end of a particularly busy um, tech support day and we talked about a bit about the life of, of a tech support officer on uh, last year on the podcast, but uh, I, I know you've had the end of a very busy day today. Yeah, there's days like that, you know, there's, there's just days you could be um, sitting around, well, certainly not sitting around, but you could, you could, you'd have the flexibility to do other things. Like, you know, I like to do a bit of research work and stuff when I have a bit of free time because obviously we're not, you know, able to pull all this stuff just out of our head. We have to look it up and do a bit of research and things. But today I just didn't have time for anything like that. For some reason, it was very busy. You're also monitoring, of course, your own email list, the VIP students. We've talked about it before on this podcast. It's high traffic and that's a fair amount of work, I imagine. Yeah, and, and even in the last, uh, even since the new year came in, I noticed that it's got even busier. Like, um, it's 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 great to see it, you know, and, and and it's great to see so many of the people on the list helping out each other. Uh, it, it generates a good uh, discussion between the members and um, those who are maybe less informed about technology can you know, listen in and, and, and uh, pick up some new stuff from us. So it's, it's, it's great. It's worked out really well over the, the last few years and certainly at the moment. 
there's nothing quite like peer support. Um, for, oh, for yeah. People, I I think, mean, yeah. people respect each other on the list, and that's that's great too, you know. So, all right. Well, listen, we've I suppose one of the queries that came up was from some of our own IT staff um, who 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 support users around the country. They'd been getting lots of queries from service users about Windows 10. How does it work? How can I get it? What's it like? And one of the things, Paul, I thought we'd start with because you've put together a kind of a frequently asked questions are some of the things you get asked most about Windows 10. But the one I was interested at, or interested in rather, was you talked about the process for installing. I installed Windows 10 last year on top of Windows 8.1 on my tablet. And I, the best I can describe the install as, it was a bit hit and miss. It did work, but I'm not really sure how it worked. Yeah, well, um, I suppose the, the way I go about it on my own computers, and, and if I have to do it uh, on other people's computers, which I have done a few already, um, I, you know, I, I think about the whole process of, of, of the upgrade and what it's going to involve and what I need to what, what I need to have in place in order to get it to run as smoothly as possible. So um, I, I, I actually tend to find using NVDA, um, the free screen reader, NVDA is my screen reader of choice when it comes to uh, preparing a computer to be upgraded from either Windows 7 or 10. And... Um, you know, I, I also prefer to, to use the update icon that's in the system tray rather than to uh, perform the uh, the upgrade from a from a DVD or anything. Uh, I think it, it it by all accounts from what I've read, it's, it's it seems to be a more natural upgrade process. And um, during the first part of the upgrade you'll find that you go online via the upgrade icon in your system tray. You'll you'll be asked a few questions or whatever. Um, the, 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 the Microsoft site will most likely tap into your computer and do a bit of investigation as to what hardware and so on you have on there. Then it will come back and... Uh, give you the options for what type of install you want and so on. And NVDA, for me, tends to do a good job in covering those areas to get me on the way. And and that's pretty good, isn't it? Because I, I know from when I did it, it was something similar, although I was using JAWS. I, I went into the Windows system tray. It downloaded the update. That will obviously depend on your broadband speed. Yes. But I was able to select the options. I think it's when you restart, there's a bit of quietness. Is that right? Yeah, it's 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 outside the main Windows environment that you have this quiet period, and you know it's like um, I, I remember some of the early days when I was only a novice at doing things like this. I was quite nervous that I'd be running, looking around for someone sighted to come every five minutes and check out what was happening. But I think when you've done it so many times, as maybe yourself or myself or a few other people out there might have done. Uh, you'll find uh, you learn to relax a bit more, chill out a bit, and let let it let it do things. And Windows 10 actually is one of the better systems that way. Um, I just found that it uh, when I, I gave it a, a, an approximate amount of time, I'd probably allow it maybe um, maybe 45 minutes or an hour or so to do its business outside of the win- the main Windows environment. And then I'd take a chance and I'd automatically, I'd, I'd get Narrator to come on. I'd turn on Narrator using the Windows key and enter. And if if 
if the upgrade had reached a stage where speech could be enabled, narrator would come on. If not, it would just I would leave it alone and let it go for another while. Using the, 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 the Windows key and the Enter key doesn't really cause you to, to make any settings changes or to do interrupt the installation or whatever. So it's not going to do any damage if no. if, if you're if you're in the, if it's in the middle of something and it's not quite ready to bring on the narrator program yet, it's not going to do any go damage. Go away and leave it alone. Okay, ahead, leave and it. you won't have done any any damage. But in the past I, I you know I could go way back some years that I would have remember pressing the enter key and tabbing and pressing the enter key and doing all sorts of crazy things and, and then I would end up with a botched install installation. Okay. So Paul, one of the questions, I know you've been asked this and I've been asked it, I think some of our technology training colleagues have been asked it, is about the, the version of Windows 10. And I know Microsoft are trying to streamline a lot of this stuff. We'll talk about that in a sec. But what is the, the current, I suppose, and I'm conscious this is that time of recording, which is the beginning of March. What is the current version of Windows 10? The current version of Windows 10 is 1511. And um, just prior, just before Christmas, um, there was a major update to Windows 10. It was kind of like one of those service packs from the from the Windows 7 days when you had a service pack 1 or a service pack 2. I suppose you could liken it a bit to those. And with this, um, with that new new sort of version that, that was downloaded to our Windows 10 systems, you would notice an, an increase in speed and performance. And even in recent times with the smaller version updates, uh, I noticed that the screen reader, in, again, in my case, JAWS, is coming on much quicker at the logon screen and so on. So these, these, these things are important. And I have been looking at a few people's machines out there who have Windows 10, and I've noticed that they don't even have the 15.11 update on their systems. Now, it's a very large update, and it's possibly due to that you need to download it deliberately or, man, you know, to, to have it, to, 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 to take it down deliberately, because otherwise it'll just sit there waiting for, for you to do so. And uh, I found that, that I had to, on my own computers, I had to uh, go in and, and uh, get the, uh, the download of the upgrade started, as, uh, you know. So, but but it, but it is important, I suppose, you're saying for those improvements in speed, and I can um, certainly attest to that. I have a, a machine here with a solid state disk, and Windows 10 b- goes to the logon screen in about four seconds. It's it's incredible. Um, but I suppose what what you're saying is, people, you know, you should make sure you have the latest update. Yeah, it is very important. And those updates are, are not just there for fun; they're there for 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 a purpose, sure, and yeah. people should have them. Okay, what 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 kind of system? Because I've I've read lots of things about Windows Ten, and one of the big articles that a lot of the uh, technology journalists were writing last year was that Windows Ten is the last operating system for Microsoft. In other words, that they're just going to kind of keep patching and, you know, kind of upgrading people. Is that true? Is it a different type of system? It, well, it is. I mean, uh, Microsoft's uh, whole um, idea with, with Windows 10 is that it's going to be, a, it, it is uh, a, a, a universal operating system. They're going to have it on tablets, on desktop computers, laptops, and also on their on, on smartphones, so um, that's what Microsoft is attempting to do with this um, version of Windows. It, it's it's to be a universal operating system. 
I suppose time will tell how well that will work out for them. Um, but uh, it is the way, it seems to be the way of the future, and um, even the applications and all that will will be universal across the board. So I suppose one system for all. And I suppose, oh, you know, for all hardware devices. I, 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 you know, I suppose it, it kind of makes me think of the idea that when, whenever Windows Mobile becomes <laughs> becomes um, more usable for us, uh, you know, you you will be able to have. And I suppose this is the 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 end the end game. You will be able to yeah. have your your experience of your icons, and everything will just sync across on the different Windows um, devices it. that it you're will using. Be one desktop, or you know, okay. on all systems. So you'll, we look you, forward to that day, Paul. Whenever it happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, let's talk a little bit about something that, that's got a lot of publicity when Windows 10 came out. That was the start menu. I suppose in work, um, you and I, I think, were using Windows 7 and then I had Windows 8 uh, at home for a while. And I have to say 8 and 8.1 to a lesser degree just drove me mad because I, I found it quite sluggish. All over. But the thing I, I missed most was the start menu and the search box wasn't there. That's back now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was the same as you. I, I just felt when I went up to Windows 8 and 8.1, I felt cheated after being with 7 because for me, actually, 7 was a lovely system to work with. And it just seemed so logical and, and user-friendly. I, 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 I liked it very much. But um, when I went in, when they moved to Windows 8 and 8.1, and, and I also think that Microsoft would like to forget the nightmare that Windows 8 and 8.1 yeah, yeah. was. I think you're right. Um, it, it, it introduced these new Metro apps, and um, it, the start menu uh, in Windows 8 was... Uh, it was all over the. Basically, you had. I believe that to a sighted person, you had these uh, app, live tiles opening up on your screen as soon as you turn, you know, turned on your computer. You had all these live tiles which had no frames around them, no toolbars. Most of them had no toolbars or anything, and they just took over the whole screen area. Uh, so really, there wasn't a start menu there as such. It was just a, a mishmash of a lot of different uh, um, apps, you know, loading up. Whereas now, in in Windows 10, you've got when you open the start menu, they, they, they've returned the old start menu button, and uh, when you open the start menu, you've got the search box to a degree. You down arrow, and you're then into a kind of a hybrid menu. You have, on the left side, you've got the traditional or pretty much the traditional um, classic menu that we knew in, in, in Windows 7. And then if you right arrow, you're into the uh, a secondary start menu, which is the apps. But they're much more refined and more controlled at this new start menu, so it's 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 pretty easy to maneuver around it and find what you want. I've noticed, Paul, and I don't know, maybe you can move these things around, but I've noticed the applications I use most frequently now seem to pop up. So I, I'm you know I'm using Word a lot. I'm using Outlook, I suppose. And I find them, you know, I don't even have to search for them in the search box. They're sitting on the start menu because the system seems to know these are apps you use regularly. Yeah, it, it, it's got this sort of it, 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 uh, artificial intelligence that seems to, uh, based on your previous uh, computer work, whatever it may be, that it can um, offer you you know the the most the the most commonly used apps and applications, desktop or otherwise. 
So um, again, that's another handy feature, and it's it's done in a way that it's not messy. It's 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 actually quite tidy and clean. It's not something that's going to be all over the place. Certainly good to see the start menu back. Then I think we're 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 happy with that. L- let's talk a bit about because you mentioned apps there a few times, and I suppose there's some new terminology and I suppose this came in in Windows 8 as well uh, because there are there's the whole there's an app store now um, and you can buy apps and and these are kind of probably kind of mobile style apps have you tried many of them are many of them accessible? Well I, I don't I, I've, I've, I've looked around the, the, the Microsoft store and I don't particularly like it that well it's not as well laid out as I, I like and, and I, I find it difficult to download something from it but um, I do visit occasionally also I, a few of the apps that I took down I didn't know much about them when I was taking them down but I didn't find them uh, maybe one or one out of maybe four or five apps that I took down altogether was reasonably okay but a lot of them could do it a bit more work in terms of accessibility so again, it's something else we'll have to watch this space. But recently, I read an article where um, the new um, head in Microsoft has uh, actually made accessibility a priority. So um, that's something um, that we could look forward to, I'm sure. He, he seems to be very keen on um, vamping up the uh, accessibility in, in their system. Yeah, and there's a whole, it, it's interesting you mentioned that there's a whole uh, range of things happening at the moment with Microsoft and the accessibility team. And yeah. apparently there's going to be all sorts of changes in SharePoint and Office 365. And, and if you use those type of applications in, in, in um, a work scenario, I suppose, really, or college or yeah. education, it's going to be very good. Uh, one of the things, Paul, I wanted to um, talk about as well, and it's kind of linked to all this Office 365 stuff because everything is becoming web based nowadays. Yeah. And uh, Microsoft's default uh, browser in Windows 10 is called Microsoft Edge, and that's not, yeah. as far as I know, accessible at all at the moment, is it? No, I mean it's not just you or me saying that. It's it, this is it's it's been um, it, any of the uh, access accessibility software vendors are are for the moment telling us to steer away from Edge. Um, I had a look at it myself with JAWS and with NVDA. And, um, you know, it, it, it is usable, but you have to understand what you're looking at. If you don't understand the screen, then it's not going to mean a whole lot to you. Um, there is a way, thankfully, there is a way that you can um, go back to Internet Explorer because it's still there, Internet Explorer 11. is still uh, an optional component in Windows 10 for the moment anyway. So... Uh, there is a way that you can make Internet Explorer your default browser and avoid having to use Edge, at least for the moment. Okay, and, and I think you, you, um, you have to do something similar if you read PDF documents. There is a built-in PDF reader. Uh, it's not accessible, so if you download Adobe Acrobat, you can make that your default. Yeah, Adobe DC, Adobe, Adobe Reader DC. DC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things I was reading about, and you flagged it on your list of, I'm, I, I, I presume you're being asked this a lot on the phone, uh, about the control panel and settings app, and there's a bit of a difference. And I used to you know, I have fond memories going way back to the control panel. But it looks like we're going to be losing it very soon. Uh, it's just... Uh, <laughs> change for change's sake. <laughs> I don't like all this change. Sure. Change for the sake of change. 
Uh, yeah, the, the, the control panel is, is still there for the time being, but uh, compared to all it used to be able to do, it has been reduced in favour of a new um, setting centre in Windows 10. And um, that setting centre can be uh, accessed quite easily via the keyboard. If you use Windows key and letter I, it'll open up the uh, setting centre for you. And it's in rows and columns, uh, and you would move through... Uh, you know the the, the 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 settings until you come to a particular category of setting that you're looking for, such as we'll say maybe um, updates and things like that. Um, it's 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 not bad. It's quite it's quite accessible. Yeah, there's no problem really. There's no real issues with it. It's just that what I find about it is the way that when you go into a particular setting. Such as maybe Windows Update, it's it's the, the the terminology and stuff in it can be quite. You need to think about some of the terminology they're using when they're talking about updating and all that because it doesn't always make sense, and you you'd kind you'd be inclined to uh, feel that well maybe that's not what I want, when in fact it, it would be you know so. Uh, things like that in the new settings center for me I found that they need you know the terminology of of, of some of the settings and, and and how you access them and how you set them in place could be improved a little bit I think again going back to this the point you were making a few minutes ago about this unified operating system across desktop tablet mobile is the idea that you would have you know on, on your on your current mobile phone be it an iPhone or Android Android or Windows yeah. Phone, you have you have a settings app, and everything is inside yeah. the set. So it's it's just that mindset, isn't it? it? It's a similar thing. Yeah, well, that's whatever. Again, it's just another indication of how everything's moving to that kind of uh, environment now. Okay. Um, One so. of the other questions, uh, Paul, that certainly I know you've had and um, some of our trainers had it because I was talking to someone last week was about the Action Centre and because we hear Action Centre I have to say, admit it's something I haven't explored a whole lot uh, how useful is it for us or is it something we should be thinking about? Well you know I remember the Action Centre originally in Windows 7 and I have to say uh, I never really used it a lot I, I used to see the icon regularly in my system tray and it just it was something that I never bothered with because I don't know why I just didn't but I took a closer look at it um, no, originally when I did see it in Windows 7, the one or two times that I did look at it, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. But uh, in, Wind in Windows 10, um, I, I took a more keener interest in it. And you can, act you can actually access the Action Center with the Windows key and letter A. It pops out from the right side of the screen for anybody that has a bit of useful vision. And in here, you can set different things like Wi-Fi and uh, Bluetooth and notification area. You've got these new toast notifications in Windows 10 that tell you, you know, exactly what's going on at your, on your computer, such as maybe a, a new update has come in or something has stopped working correctly and so on. And you can go into the Action Center and review all these notifications as well as make settings changes to things like your Wi-Fi and so on. But it's a much cleaner action center than the old Windows 7 was. And uh, I do ha have to say I do like it and I do use it quite a bit. I was playing with something uh, recently actually on my Surface. I needed to do some work and I wasn't near a plug, but I didn't need Wi-Fi. Uh, the battery was quite low, but I was able to enable flight mode. 
And uh, so yeah. that, that turns off everything. And again, going back to this unified operating system, so a lot of the terminology is being carried over from mobiles, from stuff yeah. that, we, that, we, that we would be used to. Um, Paul, one of the, the big questions is about antivirus and protection. And um, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking uh, I use Microsoft Security Essentials. And I wondered how you rate that or, or what should people be doing about that? Well, I, I, I've been using Security Essentials, I suppose, on all my computers since um, Windows 7. And uh, I, I, I suppose the first thing that attracts you to it is it's very simple to use and very you know, easy to use. Uh, the controls are all laid out nicely and it's, it's, it's very intuitive how, how it works. Um, but... I have read a lot of uh, things on email groups and so on where people say, oh, yeah, it's, it's okay, but it's only a temporary solution and shouldn't be seen as a serious antivirus program. But I, I've read through some of the Microsoft books on Windows 10, and they're they're quite happy to say, look, you know, we're including antivirus in, in, in Windows 10. So they, they, nowhere did I read uh, only use it as a temporary solution that, you know, it, it, it can do a job. But uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something you're going to have to, it's, it's something you're going to have to do more research mm-hmm. into if you're happy enough to have it as your primary antivirus or if you just feel you want to um, use it as a temporary thing until you get a chance to look at some other antivirus like McAfee or AVG or whatever. And there are a few good free software packages out there. Okay, and, and it's, it's been renamed, hasn't it, to Windows Defender in I think it's it now known Windows 8. Windows Defender, yeah. 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 I, I suppose antivirus is one of those things, isn't it, that people have, everyone has an opinion on what works and what doesn't work. If you've had something for a long time, yeah. I know people who've had yeah. McAfee or Norton or whatever and say, I won't, wouldn't touch anything else. There's AVG, there's a vast, there's lots of stuff out there. And I've, I've, it's interesting, you can read articles where people talk about using three different virus scanning yes. engines and they all detect different things. I've had a few, I had a few um, calls this last um, couple of months where JAWS would suddenly stop working on people's computers and it actually went back to the fact that they had installed AVG Free, the most current version of it, and it, it was seeing JAWS as a, a potential threat. Right. So, you know, that, that was one of my things with antivirus programs over the years. I, I saw so many different problems, particularly where uh, accessibility software was related. And uh, I suppose that's what kind of turned me off bothering with them. Also, the fact that they can tend to put a lot of pressure or processing pressure on your computer, slow it down or, you know, make uh, going into the simplest of programs uh, seem very sluggish and heavy. So um, I, I suppose myself, I'm willing to stay with it. But again, as I say, everyone should make up their own mind. Okay. Paul, let's talk a, a little bit, um, just before we let you go, about access technology and what is and isn't supported. And I suppose at this point, almost all the major vendors are supported. You've mentioned NVDA and JAWS already. I'm yeah. I'm personally running JAWS. It, it's, it's pretty good for me. It, are, are you having problems with anything that you're running? No, I mean... You need to be running at least a minimum of JAWS 16 to work with Windows Windows 10, and we know JAWS 17 is the current version. So also the latest NVDA. And um, a program that not, maybe not too many people are aware of that's also um, 
Windows 10 Ready is Windows 9.3, which if you have a legally held copy of uh, Microsoft Office, you can download Windows 9.3 free of charge. The only thing it doesn't come with is support on uh, over the phone support so but there are optional email lists and things like that that um that that that, that will help you if you have a problem with any of the window eyes uh you know settings or whatever is and and also for people using say magnification such as zoom text um at it, up to up to last uh, up to last June June 2015, uh, officially uh, Zoom Text wasn't supported. Zoom Text 10.1, but from June of 2015 onwards, um, Zoom Text 10.1 will work with Windows 10. Okay, and I suppose if you're installing, that's one of the things certainly that I had to do, when you're installing over a previous copy of Windows 8, I think all the assistive technologies are recommending that you reinstall your product after the upgrade, isn't that right? Yes, um, I myself have, have uh, had issues where when I, when I updated to Windows 10, I noticed I had to repair Microsoft Office, I had to reinstall NVDA and JAWS, and I know, I suppose, depending on what other programs you use, you may have to reinstall or repair them also. So that's so, something to think about. Okay, so again, you, you just got to check, and if, yeah. some, if something isn't um, yeah. working right, it's probably needs to reinstall. A bit of preparation work before you actually start doing the okay. upgrade is, is, is good. And to have all these programs, don't wait until, you know, don't wait until after the install and realize, oh, I need to download X, Y, and Z. Have them all downloaded and some, on a USB stick or somewhere handy where you can reinstall them if you need to. Now, speaking of preparation, there's probably people listening to this, listening to you, and you've gotten people very excited and they want to run off and, and install Windows 10. Yeah. What kind of, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of where, where should people install and not install? In other words, if you have a machine that's over three or four years old, is there a point at where you would say to people, no, stick with what you have? Or is it safe that if you're on Windows 7, will, will that automatically mean your machine is okay? What's the, what's the guidelines on specs? Well, I don't think so. I, I, I don't tend to agree that if you're on Windows 7, you should automatically update. I mean, everyone, when they're working with their computer for a certain length of time, will will know how the machine behaves. I mean, if it's behaving sluggish on that with Windows 7, then there is a possible danger that it, it, it'll either be 10 times worse with Windows 10 or it'll just not work at all. Mm. Uh, so I think things to check, too, are things like the amount of uh, RAM that you have in the computer, hard disk size, and processor. Uh, I, I tend to, like... Uh, running Windows 10 on something like an i5 or higher processor. Um, maybe certainly not less than four gigabytes of RAM and, you know, things like that. So, um, if, if your computer, and if your computer has, was pre, was an XP machine which was updated to Windows 7, I really wouldn't, mm, I would, yeah, I wouldn't don't agree with, don't um, yeah. It's interesting because I suppose if you are at the point now where you have an older machine yeah. and it's and it's sluggish and you're thinking about something different, it's probably worth exploring tablets because there are tablets out there that you can get with keyboards that you could put a free screen reader on, for example. 
Um, and, 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 you know, with Windows 10, they, they, they come in at a very competitive price, don't they? Yeah, and they're getting cheaper all the time, Stuart. You know, they, they, there's a good range of tablets, certainly from the likes of Dell and so on. And then, of course, you have the, the Microsoft, um, you have the Microsoft Surface Pro, for, um, you know, uh, tablets. Um, but if you're buying a tablet, just make sure it has what they call a five-point touch or higher on it. Um, this apparently is is necessary to uh, operate the, the, the tablet effectively with when using access technology. Okay, and I suppose just for, for people who are using access technology, there's loads. It's always worth checking out your own access technology manufacturer's website. Exactly, because, because they can give you all the advice you need, and even even if you have to drop an email to their support or something like that. Um, you know, just to be sure, then go ahead and do that. Okay. So as I say, we, we had lots of, of queries, I suppose, about Windows 10. People were interested. I really hope that chat has helped. Paul, as always, it's wonderful to have you on because you clarify so much for us. So uh, thanks a million for taking the time and hope to catch up with you very soon again. Thanks, Stuart. Good to hear you. Take care. You're listening to NCBI's Technology Podcast for March 2016. I do hope you're enjoying our program. Thank you, as always, for subscribing to our monthly podcast and downloading our episodes wherever in the world you may be listening. And I, it never ceases to amaze me when we get emails and contacts from people who are outside of Ireland who are listening and enjoying our podcast. And I think a lot of the time people are saying that they're enjoying the variety uh, on our podcast. And it's very, very nice to hear that. And it's something that we're certainly going to to um, try to maintain uh, as we as we continue producing our podcasts. Now, thanks to Paul Trainer, of course, there. You know, I, I could talk to Paul for, for forever. He's a fountain of knowledge on so many things and one of the nicest guys in the business, certainly in NCBI. Uh, he and Colin Kenny are the go-to guys. And uh, somebody told me a saying before, I think it's very good, what Paul and Colin don't know about technology is not worth knowing. So <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, we're almost at the end of our podcast. Well, before we we go. It's lovely again to return to the BT Young Scientist exhibition this year. I was at, at the exhibition in January, of course, on the last ed- edition of our podcast. We met Ali and Deirdre from Clare Galway College. And just after I met Ali and Deirdre, in fact, it was Ali and Deirdre's teacher who said I should meet Jem and Joseph, who's a young gentleman who um, is originally from India, but living in Lucan in Dublin. And Jem and Joseph has created a very cheap way to produce refreshable Braille. Now, anytime I hear Braille, I'm very excited. I'm even more interested and excited and and enthused when I hear fully sighted people getting passionate about Braille. And you're definitely going to hear this on on this interview. So I started off by asking Jemin to tell us how did he get interested in this area? Yeah, I come from India. One of our inspirations is uh, there's a blind and deaf orphanage near our home, and there's around 500 students there, but they can only afford three braille displays. Now, below me, I have an example of a braille display. It's called the Brailleian B80, and it costs $7,985, which is around €8,000. 
Uh, I made a system that only cost me 50 euro to make and you can teach uh, the whole Braille alphabet to young children who are born blind uh, at a very young age for a cost that uh, only cost me 50 euro. Okay, so I'm going to try to maybe explain what's in front of me and then you can maybe talk us through it. So there is a device, there is a box, there are six... Um, solenoids. Six, okay, solenoids. I would have called them pegs. Solenoids, oh, okay. okay. And these comprise the Braille dots. So uh, um, the, the idea here is this, this is to teach Braille to young children. This is not going to be used by an advanced Braille reader. Is no. That correct? Okay. And there would be one cell of Braille at any time because there is room for one cell at the moment. Yeah. So how does it work? If you want to, if you want to produce a particular letter on the Braille display, on the Braille pad, how does that happen? So I produce uh, the Braille alphabet using six solenoids. So a solenoid is an electromagnet that will move what you call the pegs up and down when electricity is passed through it. Okay. So if you, I can show you an example. If you place your hand on top yeah. of the letter, okay. I show you right now right. is letter A. Do you feel the letter A? So the solenoid has come up and it's sort of vibrated slightly when it comes up as well. That's due to uh, the maybe extra weight being pressed on it or okay. um, maybe the solenoid doesn't have enough push power to bring it up. Okay. And if you want to do B, for example, it would be these B, two here on yeah, the Yeah, it will there. So there's, there's B, B. There's B up. Okay. And it's clicking. And, okay. I see. Now, many teachers have different ways to teach their student a subject. The way I teach a blind person is that this is letter A this is letter B and I repeat this and most of the time they do cop on to uh, what letter I'm showing after extensive uh, usage of our product okay now um, you've been here for the last uh, three days and what have people been saying about this product people are really shocked the amount of Irish families have to pay for such equipment I was uh, tremendously upset because we all know education is such an important thing and hearing families uh, that have to send their son at an older age it's completely it's a wrong concept. We all know uh, how to write and read and to uh, use a knife and fork at a very younger age. And if they're not taught this at a younger age, for them to be taught this at an older age is going to be more harder for them to learn. Um, you and I were also talking about the link uh, just before we came on air here, about the link between reading Braille and getting a job, which is important. One of our other inspirations is a, a blind man uh, who told us about his difficulties growing up, like the way he's bullied, the way he might have walked into the wrong uh, toilets and uh, he told us the fact that because he got to learn braille uh, he went to uh, he got a job and he's married and has two kids so the difference between a person who has an education in braille and who doesn't have an education in braille is tremendously uh, big What's, what's next for the, for the Braille Pass? Uh, uh, our original plans were to make it computerised and have a keyboard beside us, but unfortunately the compa- uh, components never arrived. We believe this is the reason why we never got an award for this. But uh, uh, our future plans would be to put those components in and make it computerised, maybe perform two to three letters, and uh, hopefully get a brighter future for blind students across the world, and especially in Ireland. Many thanks to Jem and Joseph there. It's so nice to hear people enthusiastically talking about Braille, as I said just before that interview. Uh, and Jemin certainly is full of passion and full of enthusiasm. And it's really interesting to see a device that is just starting its life. And, you know, it, it, as um, as Jemin described, there's the solenoids and, and they go up and down. I was able to distinguish the letters. And a device like this 
with the right people behind it and the right people to support its growth could have real potential. I think that's what I, you know, kind of came across at The Young Scientist is that a lot of these guys just need people to believe in them, need people to support the development of a device like this. So who knows where something like that might go in the future. But Gemin's certainly doing a great job, as are, of course, Ali and Deirdre from Clare Galway College. It's so nice to have some of uh, um, aspects of the BT Young Scientist over the last two episodes of our podcast so many thanks now that's just about it for this month thank you to our contributors uh, William Campbell with his here's how.ie podcast make sure to subscribe to that check it out uh, it's a great listen and William's doing a great job Paul Trainer, of course our tech guru in NCBI and of course to Gemin Joseph from the BT Young Scientist join us in April when amongst other things Dave Nason is here to talk about an experiment he's involved in using Android for a month very interesting to see if he survives that. Uh, Until then, take care. Have a great month. This is Stuart Lawler saying goodbye and thank you for listening.